Welcome to episode 48 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Now, as regular listeners will know by now, our sponsor, Martin Miller's Gin, has as its motto, from madness to genius. It's very much aligned with the arts for their ability to transform a wild, creative idea into a work of sublime art. So this week, we're going to kick off with the Royal Academy's much-anticipated summer exhibition. You might think it's a bit weird discussing summer exhibitions in the autumn, but of course the pandemic means that the summer exhibition had to become an autumn fixture. So there's even more transformation going on in the art world. The Royal Academy describes the summer exhibition as the most joyful art exhibition in the world. It opened last week. It runs till the beginning of January. This year's theme is Reclaiming Magic. There are around 1,300 works selected by a panel of artists with the artist Yinka Schonebert at their helm. Now, Yinka Shonibar needs no introduction. He was born in Britain, grew up in Nigeria and came back to Britain to study at the Byamshaw School of Art and Goldsmiths. He's become globally well known for his work that explores colonialism and post-colonialism in the context of globalisation. And he became a household name when his Nelson's Ship in a Bottle was commissioned for the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. Here to tell us about what we're going to see is no other than the Secretary and Chief Executive of the Royal Academy, Axel Ruger, who curated the summer exhibition alongside Yinka Schoenberg. Good morning, Axel. Yes, good morning to you and Ed. It's nice to be here. Very nice to have you. Uh, Look, the summer exhibition is always a hugely popular crowd pleaser. It's had some extremely famous artists like Grayson Perry curating it in the past. So this year's exhibition, as I understand it, is going right back to the 18th century founding principles of access to the Academy, which was to create an annual exhibition that reflects the diversity of human expression. Yinka Schonebert's stated aim this year is to include lots of artists not normally shown at places like the Academy, self-taught artists, artists with disabilities, artists from the African diaspora, and marginalised artists who've been overlooked by the Western art narrative. So... To kick off, what I really wanted to ask is how different does this summer exhibition feel to ones that have happened previously? Um, well, I mean, it's interesting, and I'm not entirely sure that I'm the ideal person to to uh, say this because I'm so close to it, having been so closely involved. So it is really much to the viewer whether they see a big difference. But from all the feedback we've been receiving, uh, people do notice that there is a fairly considerable number of works by artists who indeed have never been in, in the summer exhibition and whom we otherwise have not seen at the Royal Academy. So in that sense, I think it feels different. But Yinka has also quite deliberately said he wanted no sense of any hierarchy in the display. So in that sense, also the self-taught artists, the sent in works, um, as well as the invited artists hang side by side and uh, evenly distributed through the exhibition with the works of our own Royal Academicians. So in that sense, I think the show does feel different and I dare say uh, somewhat more inclusive. Well, it looks fantastic from from the outside. I haven't been in yet, but it, I was walking past it the other day with a friend from Kenya who was absolutely, wow, look at all that African art. It looks amazing just from what you can see. I know that, as, as you say, there's, there's always quite a bit of work by members of the public in the summer exhibition. Is there going to be about the same amount this year or have you cut back on that a bit to make way for all these other newer artists that you're bringing in? No, I think relatively speaking, it's still the sort of the same the same numbers. We have about uh, some eight hundred works by members of the public of the sent in works uh, chosen from about fourteen thousand works that had been sent into the academy. 
Um, then we have uh, about 400 works by the Royal Academicians, plus then works by artists who have been specifically invited. Great. We've had a uh, quick dog attack during this podcast, but I'm going to ask my question <laughs> anyway, which is about the architecture room curated by David Adjay. Please talk a bit about that so I can go back on mute, Axel. <laughs> um, yeah, well, this year, uh, there's always an uh, one of the rooms devoted to architecture, because as you know, architecture forms also an important discipline within the academy and at the body of the Royal Academicians. And David Ajay, being one of our Royal Academicians this year, um, um, curated the, the, um, the architecture room. Uh, and having invited a fair number of, of architects also of uh, practices uh, from outside of Europe, from um, also indeed uh, Africa, um, and really uh, confronting issues of, of um, climate change uh, in their work and also uh, sort of more local concerns and issues uh, in their own um, geography, as it were. So uh, the and the room in its installation is also quite different because for the works that are on the walls, uh, he chose for a sort of tiered uh, display whereby the works in the upper registers, if you like, high up on the wall, are sort of leaning in as if they're sort of coming towards you. And that is a bit like also how the Royal uh, the summer exhibition was installed in its early days when where the works were hanging floor to ceiling. And then also in the room, what you would experience is sound in the background, which was uh, done by uh, David's brother, who is a sound artist. And um, the summer exhibition this year is also accompanied by a whole sound program that Yinka very much wanted to be part of the exhibition. I'm very excited about that because uh, I gather Linton Crazy Johnson is part of it. And I once made a pop video with Linton Crazy Johnson <laughs> a very, 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 very long time ago. But tell us a bit more about that. Will that be... He still talks about it, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Um, but it's, it's, will, will you be... Is this a sort of thing where you put your headphones on and then... A bit like they've done at the VNA with various exhibitions. They'll be yes, yes. You can yeah. do that. It's it's. There's a possibility to download it onto your personal device, and if you bring your headphones, you can listen it in the exhibition and otherwise also via the website and so forth. And it is specifically not meant to be one uh, one number per room, but it is uh, sort of a sort of general uh, program of I think eight contributors. Um, that um, form another dimension, as it were, to to the summer exhibition this year. And what what are the highlights this year? Is there anything that that's really stands out? I know you don't want to be hierarchical, so you're not going to say <laughs> there's this great famous artist that you've all got to go and look at. But the, what 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 is a not to be missed? Well, I mean, in in the show, what is really important also to Yinka's vision of the exhibition is that he took an artist who is no longer alive, which is unusual for the summer exhibition because the conditions are that to be in it, you ought to be alive and the work should not be all, any older than five years. However, um, we made an exception this year because for Yinka it was crucially important uh, to uh, include the work of Bill Trailer. Bill Trailer is an American artist uh, who from uh, the South who uh, was born into enslavement in 1853 um, and after he was liberated then worked from pretty much all his life as a sharecropper and only took up um, making art at the age of 85. So there's still hope for all of us. 
um, and <laughs> and um, uh, worked as an artist then for about um, six, seven years, uh, but created a body of fifteen uh, hundred, around about fifteen hundred sort of paintings and drawings. And we have five of those in the exhibition, and the exhibition in a way opens with those. Um, so that is a really sort of important touchstone uh, within the exhibition. And then we're quite proud that we have also a number of works by really important female, black female uh, artists from the United States, who are really were in already in the 70s, really at the forefront of the black arts movement and um, um, the black feminist movement. Um, and those include uh, Faith Ringgold and uh, Mary Lovelace O'Neill and Howardina Pindell. Um, so it is great to have these sort of iconic um, artists next to um, you know artists um, like Ibrahim Mahama and um, various others um, in, in the exhibition. For example, in the Central Hall, there's a rather impressive work by Nina Kalu, um, who is a neurodiverse artist. So it's a really sort of wide range. And of course, the works are traditionally for sale in the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition, so people can purchase them. Absolutely. Um, no, that's for the, the summer exhibition. If you go right back to uh, 1768, when the Royal Academy was founded, this exhibition was set up alongside the academy, as it were, the school, um, in order to fund the academy and support the students um, and, um, you know, give the, the academy an income and give artists a platform and an income. Um, and that principle is actually uh, unchanged until the present day. And we are now having the 253rd summer exhibition because in its entire history of the Royal Academy, the exhibition has always taken place world wars notwithstanding, other crises notwithstanding. So, of course, also last year and just this year, we felt a pandemic should not knock us sideways. And we have uh, the the summer exhibition and indeed um, rely on, on the sales uh, of the works in the show. And you've never missed a summer exhibition, even during World War II? No, never. That is amazing. That yeah, is a that is amazing. Fact. Yeah, no, that is. And I've, I mean, I've only been at myself at the academy for two and a half years now. And I said, I'd be damned if I were the first secretary ever yeah. to cancel a summer exhibition. So that's not going to happen. Come hell it's or like cancelling Christmas. Good for <laughs> you. <laughs> Three cheers for Axel Ruger. Yeah. Well, actually, it's very exciting to have you on, Axel, because we have, shockingly, on this podcast, we haven't had the Royal Academy on before. So now we've got you. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit what's coming up? Because in October, you've got this exhibition of late constables. And then next year, of course, the much anticipated Bacon Show, and then Women Modernists. So can you give us a quick tour of some of the highlights coming up? Yes, indeed. So um, we're just about, I mean, if you, those of you who have not seen it yet, you know, get your skates on and see Hockney for the last uh, two days. It closes on That's Sunday. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and we just closed Michael Armitage's exhibition last week. Um, but we are now um, going into the autumn season with indeed an exhibition on late Constable. Of course, uh, Constable having been a Royal Academician and one of his works in our collection, The Leaping Horse, as it were, is also the leaping point for us, uh, excuse the pun, uh, to uh, tackle the theme of his late work and showing really in his late work how 
sort of modern an artist uh, he sort of became later on and how much freer and looser his painting style becomes. And we're getting really great, great loans for the show. So that is certainly something to be seen. And then parallel to that, we're showing um, a photography exhibition, slightly unusual for the Royal Academy, but there's a Swiss photographer, Hélène Binet. And so in her architectural photography, she really sort of um, uh, gives a, a really fascinating, rather poetic view of, of some uh, buildings of great architects like Zaha Hadid, Peter Sumtor, uh, and various others. So um, I'm sure the architectural community will be excited about that. And then indeed, next year in the spring, we're going to have an exhibition on Francis Bacon. Um, we have been lucky that we have been able to keep the show together because it was planned for the beginning of this year. Um, but all the lenders have stuck with us. So we will be showing a beautiful exhibition on uh, his work around the topic of man and beast, because as you probably know, uh, he was greatly uh, fascinated by animals, but also the animalistic in us humans. And um, you will see in many of his paintings also, if you like, almost creatures that sort of um, straddle the divide between between man and, and animal, man and beast. And so that is the theme of the exhibition. And we're bringing together for the first time his three paintings of uh, the bullfights he did in, in one room, which should be rather exciting. And then, you know, various exhibitions, you uh, mentioned modernist, modernist women. These are sort of uh, women in the early to mid 20th century uh, from from Germany. Um, whom we will be sh uh, bringing together in, in an exhibition. And um, another exhibition to look forward to is an exhibition on a Japanese artist, Kiyosai, who is a sort of um, early, late 19th century, early 20th century artist. He is often also called the sort of forefather or godfather of manga. So that's yet an, an, an entirely different dimension that we will then be showing next year. Oh, how exciting. Well, we look forward to all of it. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, it was a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. It was lovely. Thank you, Axel. Our next guest is responsible for saving a magnificent 1696 Stradivarius, one of the most valuable violins in the world. He raised funds during the pandemic in a white-knuckle race against the clock. He secured £1.2 million by convincing investors to buy a share in the rare instrument, a rare instrument that only the best violinists can dream of playing. Luckily, our guest is one of Britain's leading violinists, as well as being a festival director, a string educationist, and a music entrepreneur. He's not only performed with several orchestras, including the BBC Philharmonic and Royal Philharmonic, he's featured on film soundtracks. Of course, you would have heard him in Mission Impossible, The Town of Mr. Ripley, and Pride and Prejudice. He is, of course, Andrew Berardi, founder of the Bernardi Music Group, and he's here to tell this violin's extraordinary story. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Ed. Thanks so much for, for having me on. Well, good morning, Andrew. It's so lovely to have you with us because the minute I heard this heartwarming story, I knew our listeners would love it too. Now, I gather the violin is now named after the syndicate who helped you buy it. So it's now called the Amici Bernardi Music Group Stradivarius. It obviously has a very happy ending, this story. So start from the beginning and tell us how you discovered this extraordinary violin and exactly how you saved it. Well, that, that, that's a wonderful question and, um, and a wonderful story to share. Um, in a nutshell, seven years ago, I, I did a few notes playing on this amazing violin and I realised that our 25-year search for a great violin that I could possibly play, I'm going to come to an end, this was the violin, and 
a wonderful group of friends and investors uh, supported me very strongly. And then last year, as Ed just mentioned, our biggest investor was leaving. We had to raise 1.2 million in the pandemic to secure the violin for the next period, which we've now done. And it's been a it's a partnership. It's a friendship, a partnership, and it's a vision to bring together communities, many communities, young people through music and to do it particularly through leading on the Stradivarius violin, which it makes the most wonderful sound. I just can't describe what a fine sound it is. And that inspires people. And we're looking forward to recording many of the pieces which have been written for me and the violin now, actually, with the new violin concerto by Paul Lewis. Um, we're looking forward to recording those on the Signum label and, and making the vision even stronger. I mean, apart from obviously you very cleverly getting your name, name on, the, on the Stradivarius, um, I, there are two things that intrigue me into because it's it's I was going to say common it's not common but the traditional model and I saw Nicola Benedetti play last week for example is for a wealthy philanthropist to purchase one of these extraordinary instruments and then lend it to a virtuoso performer but are you saying your model is different in the sense that different violinists will get to play the Stradivarius I'm not different violinists I'm I'm the violinist it's focused on I'm the I'm it, there's a more for me to play there's one perhaps caveat to that which is. Um, out of my own gratitude for being able to play on the violin right at the beginning, I said every year I would lend um, the violin for two weeks to an outstanding young musician. And then when you say that uh, people buy shares in it and you had to sort of do this rush against the clock, does that mean that, say, in, for the sake of argument, in 10 years' time, when a, this Stradivarius is worth, for the sake of argument, £3 million, people could sell on their shares? The violin's actually worth £3.1 right now, actually. Um, and oh. the £1.2 we raised <laughs> was just for a 50% stake at the time. So it's, it'd be worth a lot more than £3 million in 10 years' time, actually. But that's not the purpose and the drive behind it. M most violinists in the last 15 years have had their instruments syndicated. So they've had several people coming together and buying their instruments. And the scenario with Nicola, where it's one benefactor, is actually quite unusual. And that's where I started. I started with that idea of syndication. It was unusual for a musician to lead it, but that's what I did. And we've taken it to another level, which again is different to everyone else. We've actually created a, a share-based company and to everyone is a shareholder. Now, the Bernardi Music Group, you're based in West Sussex, but certainly not confined to it, um, as you perform throughout the UK, even as far as China. And um, I gather the violin's taken you on even more tours and inspired a lot of commissions, including a recent string octet called White Storks by Helen Ottaway to celebrate some of the rewilding at Castle in West Sussex. So tell our listeners a bit more about those, the kind of, that kind of impact that the violin's had. It's almost as if it's a character in its own right. Absolutely. And um, in terms of White Storks, that whole project on the Nepcastle estate that Charlie and Izzy Burrell have put together and led, it's again about bringing a community together and it's an, an amazing flourishing community. We've done the concert every year called the Wilding Concert. Um, I should add we've got a violin concerto as well that's been written for us recently for the Strad which really captures what the violin is and what it's about and White Storks was the precursor to that um, and we really enjoyed in lockdown last year emptying the castle turning it into a recording studio whereas we normally turn it into a concert hall and we recorded White Storks as they were literally outside flying around. So the, the really dull question but because you've had to answer it so many times what is it about Stradivarius? It's a great question and it's the sound is absolutely unique. Um, there is no um, sound like it. Is it the wood he used? Is it the way that it's carved? We, we really don't know. Um, there is the, the bits we do know about. It's the sum of the parts and the parts are 
wood you can no longer obtain. It's very, very uh, densely uh, condensed spruce, which grew through a mini ice age, combined with a varnish that we don't quite know what's in it or how it was laid. And also that then has been put together by a, a genius instead of Aris. Does age matter? I mean, if, if, for example, I mean, in my old constituency, we have something called the diamond synchrotron. And it could probably it could probably analyze the varnish and analyze the spruce. And part of me feels that technology could sort of recreate the raw material, maybe not the genius that carved it. But if you made a violin this morning with exactly the same material, if you reincarnated Stradivarius, would it be a different violin to one that's 300 years old? Um, it would be it would be really different. The, the, the really key component is um, Stradivarius himself. Even with modern science, we still don't quite know what uh, what he did, which is remarkable, really. But I can say when I play, it's more difficult to play than a regular violin. And as I am playing, I can feel um, myself going up to what almost feels like glass, and then the sound absolutely explodes and sings. Can you tell us a bit more about where our listeners can go and listen to all these commissions. The Violin Concerto, we're going to be recording that um, next year. Um, but why Storks, you could listen to right now if you go onto our website and go to the Nepcastle um, concert from last year um, or on YouTube. And your website is? It's bernardimusicgroup.com. And it's spelled Bernardi with the, like Bernard with an I on the end. Brilliant. And just to whet your appetites, we're now going to hear a little bit of you playing that very Stradivarius in White Storks. So that was beautiful and I actually spent a summer as a child at Nepcastle and two years ago interviewed Isabella Tree for Country and Townhouse about their rewilding project so this couldn't be a more fitting way to end your interview for this podcast so thank you so much for coming on Andrew. Well thank you very very much for having me I hope that's been a window of an insight into um, something which is absolutely unique in, in the UK. Most of you will need no introduction to the painter Duncan Grant. Vanessa Bell, the sister of Virginia Woolf, fell in love with Duncan Grant, though she was married to Clive and he was gay, and they conceived a daughter together, Angelica Garnet. Charleston, they all shared together in East Sussex, became the epicentre for the Bloomsbury Group, and now it's one of the most visited houses in England and currently home to a new exhibition of the work of Old Pauline, Duncan Grant, and I am indeed the president of the old Pauline Club, so I'm particularly interested to hear all about it. Well, now, if any of you have ever been to Charleston, or if you haven't been, rather, I urge you to go 
immediately for a full immersion in the whole Bloomsbury experience and you really get a sense of what it must have been like to live there. Now, Duncan Grant moved to Charleston at the height of the Great War in 1916 and it's 101 years since his first solo show in London. Many of the works from that show in 1920 have now been tracked down and brought together for the first solo exhibition of his work since his death in 1978. Over 30 paintings, some of which have never been seen before, are going to be on display and here to tell us all about it is Darren Clark, the Head of Collections, Research and Exhibitions at Charleston. Good morning, Darren. Good morning. Good morning, Darren. There are a lot of things we want to ask you about, but first of all, it is amazing that this is the first solo show of Duncan Grant's work for 43 years. It is, just about. He's had a few little little shows in the past, and he's obviously been included in a lot of group shows and a lot of shows that look at Bloomsbury and early British modernism, but really... There hasn't been a show that really examines his work as a, an individual, as a solo artist. Why do you think that is? I think because the Bloomsbury story is just so compelling and there's so many stories and so much gossip there that the background to the works is quite often overtakes the works themselves. So you you want to find out about the lives they lived and who they were loving and what they were doing, um, which sort of overtakes the work that they were doing. All the paintings, I gather, in the show were painted at Charleston, which I gather was very deliberate to give a real sense of, you know, the sort of avant-garde experimental world they were building. Is that right? Yeah, so most of the works, all the works pretty much come from the previous sort of four years from 1920. And so Duncan Grant was based at Charleston. As you said, they moved there in 1916. Duncan Grant, his lover, David Garnett, his other lover, Vanessa Ball, and her two sons. They record that life. He's painting his surroundings. He's painting Charleston. He's painting the rooms that the artists are decorating. And he's painting the scenes close to Charleston, the barns and the stables. Um, and he's painting the people that live there and the people that visit there. So it is a, a secret world that is is made public in 1920. Brilliant. So um, I made a mysterious reference to Duncan Grant being an old Pauline, which refers to St Paul's, which is a school I went went to, and I'm now the I'm now the head of the alumni association of St Paul's, and in fact we're going to try and secure a Duncan Grant talk in the next few months. But is there anything relevant in the slightest to the fact that Duncan Grant was at St Paul's? I mean, I think it was an important school for him. I think he met a lot of, of good, uh, lifelong friends there and support there. It was after St Paul's that uh, his aunt, the wonderful Lady Jane Strachey, sort of recognised that his, his talents were not academic and that he was an artist by nature. And so she persuaded his parents that he should go to the Westminster School of Art after St Paul's. Um, but I think St Paul's gave him a good, a good background um, for that next move. It's what we like to hear. It is amazing. I can't wait to go and see it. But also alongside the Duncan Grant paintings, you've got an exhibition called Astral Reflections by a photographer. He's called Tunji Adini Jones. He's based in New York. He was born in England, Nigerian parents. He studied at Ruskin and Yale. Tell us why you chose him, as it were, to exhibit alongside Duncan Grant. So Tunji is actually, it's a, a, an exhibition of paintings. It's his first exhibition in the UK. And he um, is really exploring his Nigerian heritage and the, the kind of diasporan situation of being brought up in, in Britain and having that British art history, that sort of European art history, but actually then going back and looking at the influences from his Nigerian heritage. So you get these wonderful and very beautiful paintings and prints that he's done for the show. 
I mean, you're right to say he's very young. He's not even 30 yet, um, but he really mm. is hitting the big time. I gather he, he's about to have a solo show at the White Cube in Bermondsey in November. So um, how did you first come across his work? So it was um, in discussion, so looking for the perfect painter um, to go alongside Duncan Grant, something that would work well visually, but also something that would work well sort of um, intellectually. And uh, we've been talking to White Cube, and so we're looking at his work and saw how how resonant it was, how beautiful it was and how well it would fit in the in the gallery next to Duncan Grant's work. What I'm interested in is that, um, you know, obviously for, for the first two years he was living at Charleston, there was this unbelievably gruesome war raging. Is, is any of that reflected in, in the paintings? I think the situation is reflected. So he didn't do war paintings. He was offered a position as a war artist. So he, um, he could have avoided farm work and been an artist, but he didn't want to be in that situation where he was actually... Uh, joining the army so um he the works are very feel very domestic there's a lot of still lives there's a lot of in, uh, sort of uh, portraits there are some wonderful fantastical works so venus and adonis that is probably one of the most famous of his works that's in the tate was in that show uh, juggler and tightrope walker which is a beautiful work paintings like room with a view which is so beautiful and full of light and set in the spring of 1919 so this first spring of peace and then this huge painting that's come from Belfast called Interior which shows Vanessa Bell and David Garnett sort of doing their work Vanessa Bell painting a still life Duncan uh, David Garnett translating Dostoevsky in the dining room at Charleston with uh, Duncan Grant as um, observing these two figures his two lovers either side him sort of invisible but always present in the space that they would that would become synonymous with their names Um, so there's some really stunning works in the show. And I must say, Charleston does feel, whenever you visit it, it does feel like the ultimate haven. They did manage to create a sense of it being completely sealed off, really, from the rest of the world, which is quite extraordinary. It does have that atmosphere about it. It's geographically quite remote. I mean, even though we're in East Sussex and we're very close to Brighton and Eastbourne and and lots of things around us, even now, as you sort of turn off the main road and go up the track, you feel there's a sense of isolation. But at the same time, it was, uh, we, they had a lot of visitors, not just in the, during the, uh, the First World War, but when they kept the house on between the wars and it was a summer residence and lots of people would visit. And they were always connected. John Maynard Keynes had a room at Charleston from 1916. So he would come down uh, working at the Treasury and he would come down at the weekends and there would be a constant sort of influx of information about what was going on in London, what was happening in the war. You had the newspapers and you had the post. The post was delivered three times a day. So you had a, a one a lot of information exchange. So even though it was geographically removed, it was still the war was a very sort of constant thing. And you could even hear the, the, the guns in France rattling the windows at Charleston. So it was still a very physical thing as well. Oh, well, I can't wait to come and see it. Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you, Darren. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week, but thank you very much for listening. Please do keep listening and subscribe. And also please do subscribe to the Country and Townhouse and Great British Brand newsletters, which you can find on our website at countryandtownhouse.co.uk forward slash newsletter. And of course, thank you to our sponsor, Martin Miller's Gin, who's such a supporter of us and of the arts, as well as making delicious gin. I urge you all to try the Martin Miller's original, which I guarantee is absolutely fabulous. Yes, I can vouch for the fact that nothing beats a Martin Miller's original gin and tonic, although Charlotte tells me it's much better at eight o'clock in the morning, which is normally when she gets, <laughs> gets started. Oh. You can find out more
more about the original and many other delicious gins by going to martinmillersgin.com, where you can also claim a 10% discount till the end of October. So don't hang around. Use the code BREAKOUT2021 at the checkout. All those details will be on our website. But for now, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>